If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake, because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty Cake. Accept no substitute. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of Charts at Billboard. Joining me, as always, is Billboard Deputy Editor Digital, Katie Atkinson. Hello, Katie. Hey, Keith. How are you? Doing great. Well, you know, we're celebrating a pair of 20-year anniversaries of albums uh, today on the show that have a very international flair. But what could we possibly mean by that? Well, stay tuned and we'll tell you in just a second because the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop and sing-songy bits from me hmm. on uh, Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be discussing the 20th anniversary of two albums this week, Robin's Robin Is Here and Wyclef Jean's The Carnival. Andrew is joined by writers Dan Weiss and Chris Martins to talk about the two albums respectively. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode and give us a rating or review while you're at it. If you have any questions for us, feel free to tweet us at Keith underscore Caulfield or at KT Atkinson. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So, you know, Katie, here's a fun fact. Last year, I actually visited the location of where portions of Robin's album that Andrew will be talking about was recorded at. Ooh. Uh, Sharon Studio, I actually looked up, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, because it looks a little bit different from the way it sounds. Uh, Sharon Studio in Stockholm, Sweden. A lot of Swedish hits have been recorded there, yeah, I'm it's, assuming. It, it's the home of uh, uh, Max, well, it's, it's the former home of Max Martin, and uh, where Dennis Pop, the late Dennis Pop, recorded a lot of their hits in sort of the, the mid-90s. Um, I didn't actually get to go inside the studio. I just got to see the outside of it because it's no longer a studio. Right. But it's the place where Robin's Show Me Love and tracks by Britney and NSYNC and Ace of Bass and Backstreet were all recorded there. So at one point or another, this building housed all of those artists coming in and out the door. A lot of star power. It's pretty amazing. Well, we'll definitely hear all about Robin's Robin is Here. Definitely worth checking out, in addition to the rest of Robin's catalog. Hmm. And why Clef's The Carnival today on Coming Around Again. Hello, and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary-themed podcast dealing with milestone anniversaries in the music world. Uh, today we're talking about an album that introduced one of the great pop talents the last couple decades, and that's Robin's Robin is Here. Uh, now, as is often the case with the albums that we're talking about here on Coming Around Again, we're dealing with multiple release dates for multiple regions, so it's kind of it's a little sketchy as to when we're actually celebrating that anniversary. You know, the album came out uh, in Europe in October of 1995, but... Uh, we're jumping forward from that a couple of years to, to June of 1997, June 21st, when the album was released in the U.S. Uh, and to hear, to talk about the 20th anniversary of that release, we have uh, freelance writer Dan Weiss. What's up, Dan? Hi, what's up? 
So, Dan, uh, you wrote something really good for us, uh, kind of addressing this, this first Robin album within the context of like how clear it was from this one album that she was going to go on to become, you know, Robin, the, the kind of the cult pop star that we know her as today. Uh, and, you know, in your intro, you, you, you talk about this album, you kind of refer to it as a blip. And I don't, I don't even think you really mean that derisively, but it's just that, well, this, this album was out, and, you know, maybe you knew about it, maybe you didn't. It was there, but it wasn't unignorable. Right, right. I mean, the idea of even thinking about listening to her album, it's its not even necessarily like a knock on Robin. It's just that there were so many... That 1997 was a huge year for songs by acts that came out of nowhere in all different styles. Mm-hmm. You know, you had like Swing, you had Hanson, you had, you had everyone. So, uh, so, you know, having a, I guess, a, a teen pop star come out, um, sort of pre-Britney and and in the midst of Backstreet Boys and such, uh, you know, and, and she's got one name, and uh, you know, it's even if you like the song, it just doesn't seem like necessarily, you know, the, the song "Show Me Love." Uh, it did, it just didn't seem pertinent to get around to listening to her album. So I didn't even hear it for almost twenty years, possibly. Uh, and uh, and yeah, it's it's really good. Um, but uh, but I, I feel like I don't feel bad about not knowing that in 1997 because who was around to kind of tell us to listen to this, <laughs> this minor pop stars album? Yeah, that's that's fair. I think. I mean, I, I remember personally, I sort of had the same impression of Robin as an 11 year old, which was that yeah, she's you know, she's fine. Uh, they, she had two very big hits, and uh, do you know what it takes? And show me love. Those are both. Both Billboard Hot 100 mm-hmm. Top 10 hits. They were on MTV all the time. I'm sure if TRL had been around back then, they would have been major on TRL. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they didn't really add up to stardom uh, in the way we might kind of have, have thought. Like if you were introduced to Robin 10 years later and you knew that she had these mega hits, you would think, oh, well, she must have been like really huge back then. And she, she kind of was, but not really. She was... She was there. She was part of the landscape, but yeah, she she wasn't really on that level where like you had to even have an opinion about her. I, I don't. I couldn't even tell you what I thought about Robin in 1997 because the songs were there, but they just didn't really like jump out at you in such a way. Uh, I mean, right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really think to even have an opinion on Robin until uh, her, her second wind or whatever. But listening back, I mean, uh, the, the hits were. Uh, more enduring than I guess I thought at the time, which is a weird paradox, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and the interesting thing about listening to the album now is that, you know, you, you, you think of Robin as this kind of, like, you know, glamorous Swedish disco diva, and, you know, she has these really, like, barnstorming pop singles, and she just feels really massive and really dance floor-oriented. But you listen to the album, and it basically sounds like, like an R&B album. You know, I guess the, the fact that it, the, the album was technically released in 1995 first, uh, which was sort of pre, you know, the, kind of the big pop takeover of 1997 with, you know, like, uh, you know, the Cardigans and Hanson and Spice Girls and Aqua right. and stuff like that. Uh, so there wasn't really that mold necessarily for her to be what she would eventually become. So what they, there was for her was to basically sound like, like, like a total album or a 702 album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that it that it was actually ninety five or so because I mean, I, I was just kind of like uh, reacquainting myself with some of the the deep cuts and uh, a song like uh, "Just Another Girlfriend" on the album has this kind of atmospheric but also like gritty beat, and it sounds like it could have been on like Biggie's "Life After Death." Like, <laughs> could have wrapped over that track. Yeah, it's or, kind of G yeah, like on, on a Mary J. Blige album or, or possibly uh, maybe one of the the less slick songs on Mariah's. Um, I guess Butterfly was the album that mm. year. So yeah, uh, it's, yeah, the R and B 
thing. It's it's really it's really interesting. I, th- I think that what's so interesting about it is how um, pop has evolved to the point that it's surprising to us that a very R and B indebted uh, pop album from uh, you know that, that that's a surprise to us if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's fair. Like you, you think back in 1995 where this album was technically released, and you know probably the biggest pop album that year, or at least one of them. Was TLC's "Crazy Sexy Cool," uh, you know? I think that came out in late '94, but it certainly carried over well into '95, uh, and that kind of was the mold for pop music at the time. Uh, and there, you know, you had dance pop one-hit wonders. You know, people like you know, you know, like Nicky French doing "Total Eclipse of the Heart" or "Everything But the Girls Missing," stuff like that. But the, if you were to, those weren't really templates for stardom. Those were templates for like just getting on radio at all costs. But yeah, you, you flash forward to 20 years later and there really isn't that TLC mold these days. It's it's either pop or it's explicitly hip-hop. There's not that kind of middle ground, which is where Robin was trying to live back in those days. Right, right. And TLC is definitely the, the thing that I was thinking of when I was revisiting this album. Uh, Show Me Love itself is kind of this, it, it's almost the exact midpoint between, uh, I guess, I, I forget if like Rodney Jerkins or, or whoever actually produced Waterfalls, but, mm-hmm. but it's got that, uh, that you know, sort of coming down from, from New Jack Swing thing where, where Waterfalls was, you know, one of the last R&B songs to have like horns in it, you know? Right, yeah. uh, And uh and Show Me Love also kind of has like wah guitar and horns and all these kind of like last uh, vestiges of funk uh, still in there. Uh, but at the same time, it also has that signature early Max Martin sound that uh, that ended up being more defined by uh, Britney's uh, Baby One More Time. Oops, I did it again, where uh, it's got this kind of, uh, trying to think of the best way to, to describe this, I guess a staccato kind of beat where you have mm-hmm. a guitar or a piano element that's just kind of like plinking away and you've got some like uh you know eventually you started adding like slap bass to that and uh, and it just has it, it feels almost like i said like the exact middle between the tlc style and the britney style which is really uh interesting yeah and even if you, you mentioned max martin and, and he certainly is is a name that's that's well eclipsed even Robin in terms of uh, you know legacies that start sort of with this album and with this moment in time. Uh, but even look at some of the stuff that he and, and, and his, some of his compatriots did on the first Backstreet Boys album. And even that is, is much more R&B indebted than we probably realize looking back on it. I mean, they basically wanted to be boys to men. There wasn't, yeah, um, there, there wasn't really like that, that boy band model yet in, in, within like the pop context. Yeah, I mean, it's it's telling that, uh, you know, Backstreet Boys, one of the things that they covered uh, in their early stuff was PM Dawn's Set <laughs> yeah. uh, Adrift on Memory Bliss. Uh, so the, so there's definitely this feeling that, that Teen Pop had to uh, play that audience a bit at the time. Yeah, it was kind of a slow evolution moving out of that. Uh, and you get to that kind of at the end of the decade, especially with like the second Sync album where, you know, songs start to sound like they're, they're, they're really like big pop, pop blockbuster productions. And they, they sort of shed their R&B roots at that point. But, but go, going back to just the, the big songs off this album, I, I think that if there's one thing that kind of points the way towards what Robin would become uh, it's, is that this, the two singles and, and really like everything else on the album to a lesser extent, uh, they, they really pack this kind of like... In, insane innate confidence for what was then like a 16 year old i think so she, was, she was still very much a teenager making this album but both uh, do you know what it takes and show me love they have this kind of like inherent like j- just forcefulness to them and, and uh, you know kind of a desire to be heard and a, a no nonsense yeah. attitude to them and, and like that that would really kind of manifest itself later on uh 
Is there anything else about those songs that kind of points the way to, to what Robin would become to you? Uh, from the singles? I mean, I think just the general quality, like the, like re-listening to this album, uh, you know, the singles stand out for obvious reasons, but uh, there's not really, you know, there's just not much filler on here. So I think that she just, I, I don't know what the, what the recording process was like for her, how much creative control she had, but everything's just very tight on the record. There's not a lot of waste. There's nothing that, you know, a, a lot of albums, like I, I can't really to you know other people taste or something but but i'm sure like things on britney's first album uh would embarrass her or, or some other sure. fans now uh, you know uh, and uh, and robin there's there's not a single song on here that i think she would look back on or, or her fans would be and be like okay that was kind of corny or something like everything sounds uh exactly as mature and um and just you know nothing feels like it's like punching above its weight like like she just seems so comfortable uh, in this TLC Mary J. Blige kind of mode, uh, and uh, and and it's and that makes Barbara more astounding that she completely switched modes later, and and is you know even more well known and celebrated rightfully for that. Yeah, uh, well, you mentioned Britney Spears, and I, I think I think Robin like she, she does herself a really big favor here by avoiding I think three of like the biggest pratfalls that artists like Britney Spears tended to to kind of get trapped in on their debut albums. Right. Uh, one of which, one of which is that uh, there's no covers on it, which is kind of surprising for for new artists. You, like you mentioned, even the Backstreet Boys, uh, you know, they did the set adrift on memory, memory bliss yeah. cover. Robin doesn't attempt any kind of you know w- way to sort of automatically insert herself into pop history by by covering an established pop classic. Uh, there's no guess on the album, at least not that I can remember. Uh, and definitely, no, I don't think so. Yeah, definitely nothing that dates it to that period in time specifically. And Brittany definitely had at least one or two of those on her debut. And there's also no like specific uh mid 90s cultural references that any songs are built around and i'm, I'm thinking specifically right. of, of britney spears's uh, email my heart off baby one more time which exactly uh, yeah so, so yeah, the, yeah that's sort of the, what i meant uh, yeah like the, the album it sounds it doesn't the only thing that that really dates it to its time is just what the the production trends in, in pop and r&b were and even those uh, there's no, there's nothing that she really wears out in her in her production. There's no obvious um, gimmick or anything like that. I mean, it, it's maybe she was just never uh, uh, the kind of person who who went for a novelty or anything like that. And, and you know, as a person who likes a lot of novelty songs, uh, this isn't normally something that that I think is like a good or a bad. Uh, it's just that uh, this album is. Uh, it's very easy to see why it's exceptionally strong, even if you don't like those things or you do have a strong opinion of the, of those things that she avoided. So yeah, it's a surprisingly fluid listen, I would definitely say. Uh, but one of the most interesting songs uh, comes towards the very end of the album. Uh, and it's one you write about a bunch in your piece and it's the title track, which I, I think that if you were to point to one song on the album, that would, would lead you to believe that this was something that there was something more to Robin than just your average kind of run of the mill, uh, Oh, not maybe not factory produced, but at least factory promoted. Sixteen-year-old uh, pop star. It's the title track, which is the, the, the penultimate track. It, ha- it has the, like a, like a swagger to it that uh, even the singles is sort of lacking, and it has a smoothness to it, and just this easy confidence to it. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit more about it? Because because you I think you, you wrote some really good things about it. Sure, in your piece. sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, straight up, uh, you know, we were just talking about how, how as an artist who kind of avoids like easy gimmicks and, and novelties from a very early age, and yet she does this bold move at the end of the record where a record called Robin is here, you know, one, one of the more generic, uh, you know, 
album titles that you would expect from a teenager who's, who's you know, just diving into pop, uh, there's actually a title track called that, <laughs> Robin is Here, which is uh, the most unexpected thing on the album, and she, and she proceeds to... Uh, you know, sing about herself in the third person as, you know, the, the cure for whatever's ailing you, uh, particularly, uh, you know, romantically. And it's just, um, I, I mean, it's not a short song either. It's not like a little, like, one-minute snippet where she's goofing around. It's a five-and-a-half-minute song with the, with the same layered, uh, you know, slinky production as the rest of the record. And it, it predates, like, so many things. It predates uh, Rihanna's Sex With Me, from last year, where where all where she, where the song is literally an advertisement for uh, <laughs> why you should have sex with Rihanna, and it, and it predates uh, Liz Fair, uh, her infamous 2003 song "Rock Me," where she uh, you know keeps um, dating a younger man, and she you know one of the funny lines in the song is "You don't even know who Liz Fair is." <laughs> and so this is just uh, so Robin just sort of inserting herself into this. Uh, and, and singing about how Robin is here, uh, you know, to make everything, you know, fun and, and sexy and stuff. It's just so funny. And she does it totally straight faced. And, and it's so straight faced that uh, unless you actually like look up the lyrics on Genius, you might like not notice that she says things like the sun is shining. It makes everybody horny. <laughs> and uh, so, so yeah, th- this was definitely, th- this song is definitely the key to uh, there being uh, you know, such a big future uh, for her and how she ended up being such an original uh, in the late 2000s and 2010s uh, as a pop singer because you just didn't really have uh, songs like that. I mean, you know, Br- Britney's album has, uh, you know, songs like Soda Pop and Email My Heart and stuff, and, and you can debate whether or not she sort of came out the, the joke with those or even if they're taken in earnest but yeah robin is very clearly uh you know in on this uh ridiculous song and she's playing it totally straight and it's just a, a really funny interesting song but but i'll be honest like i didn't even notice it and like i i you know replaying this record and, and acquainting well, well playing this record in the first place very very late uh and uh you know enjoying it i didn't even notice this song just because it's it threaded so i mean i noticed it was good but i didn't notice that she's singing about herself or these ridiculous lyrics until i was kind of you know, told to take a look at it. Right, so yeah. it's, uh, yeah, like it's, it, I mean, it's the next to last track on the, on this record from 20 years ago. And, and the record itself, again, like to even, you kind of had to be told to, to try and play this record. The only reason why a lot of people, uh, would even know this record is, is because of her 2010, uh, album body talk or, or because of her own, sort of career resurgence because yeah as we established like even if you were a fan of the hits at the time that there was no shortage of music that was frantically pointing for you to pay attention to it so uh yeah i mean the, the, yeah. the, the song kind of shows up on the i mean there's such a there's there's such a, like a self-awareness to it and it shows up at the end of the album. It almost feels like kind of a twist ending. Like you, you have to you have to go back and kind of reconsider the rest of it because the the song is, is it's so it's so almost meta and like postmodern and and it, it definitely points to Robin already winking at her own stardom, which wasn't even a thing yet. She wasn't she wasn't anybody when she released this album. But the fact that she had the brazenness to to make this kind of self referential joke, but also like a really good smooth kind of sexy song to it too. Uh, really shows the potential that she had, and which which she would go on to satisfy later in her career. 
Uh, so, so are there any, are there any other gems to be found on this album? Any other kind of super deep cuts beyond the singles and the title track that that kind of show a different side of Rob and are worth investigating for people that might maybe, maybe don't know the album so well? Well, the the best song that that wasn't a hit for me is that uh, this "Do You Really Want Me" song, uh, "Show Respect," which to me it sounds as catchy and as uh, engaging as the two big hits. Uh, it it kind of surprises me that it wasn't a big U.S. hit. Apparently it was like a top 10 hit in, uh, in Sweden or something, but that's a song that really grabs me. It's got this intro with what sounds like the, the Mellotron at the beginning of uh, the Beatles' star, uh, Strawberry Fields Forever sure. and, uh, and and unexpectedly kind of turns into a you know mid-tempo jam. And, uh, it's, you know, she really like sings her heart out on it. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I guess it's a little surprising to me that, that this didn't follow the others. Uh, and also that song I mentioned earlier, just another girlfriend. I mean, it's a very mature, uh, sounding track that, yeah, it could have been on life after death by Biggie or Mary J. Blige album. And, it, and it's pretty. And also it's got a little grit in the, in the brick beat behind it. So, uh, and, and there's also, uh, uh, one thing I didn't really mention in my piece is that uh, the album ends with this two and a half minute acapella song uh, right. called "I Wish," where she basically—I mean, we're, we're talking about her R and B skills and ha- and how she didn't really utilize those later. That's probably because of the song she she just you know puts it all out there at once uh, with the singing, uh, you know. Uh, just singing like crazy on this acapella song. It's like a straight up like star search thing. I mean, she doesn't go for like the the acrobatic stuff like Mariah, where she's holding like the highest note or anything. But it's definitely like uh, Christina Aguilera level uh, performance without really over showing off. It's uh, it, it's just you know just straight up just her skill of singing uh, and uh, and it's and it's a nice little way to end to end the album after Robin is here. So. Yeah, there's there's plenty of uh, of good stuff. I mean, the, the first song on it, "Don't Be Right," it, it could have been a good song on "Crazy, Sexy, Cool." So after after this, uh, Robin's career starts to evolve kind of exponentially. Uh, she, you know, she, she the U.S. sort of forgets about her almost immediately afterwards because we move on to to Britney and Christina and other people like that. Uh, but she stays huge in Europe. She stays huge in Sweden. Uh, her next two albums are, you know, 1999's My Truth and 2002's Don't Stop the Music. Uh, they, you know, they, they produce hits, uh, hits after hits in, in her home country, uh, and they really show an evolving sound and an evolving image. And it's, but it's not really until about a decade after Robin is here when she, uh, the, the her self-titled album, which comes out in 2005 in Sweden, was released a couple years later here. That's sort of when she she catches back on in the U.S. Uh, and she's got this, you know, this unbelievable confidence and, and comedy, and she she knows just the right people to collaborate with and the right people to kind of wink at. And you know, by the time of Body Talk in 2010, uh, she's basically a, a, as big a pop star as you can be without actually having top 40 hits. Uh, you know, uh, dancing dancing on my own, call your girlfriend. There's, there's songs that everybody seems to know, even if they were never actually radio hits. And she's a, uh-huh. probably two, like one of the most revered artists, I would say, of the last 10 years in, in terms of, uh, you know, iconic pop figures that, that don't necessarily cross over into the mainstream world. And what's interesting to me about this is that uh, she kind of sets up a career arc that a lot of other kind of cult pop stars end up following in miniature, which is that she has these, these couple of kind of almost fluky pop hits really early on in her career. 
And then as she evolves, uh, you know, the, 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 the radio play and the mainstream sort of acclaim fades away, but she cultivates this very passionate, loyal uh, underground audience. And she'll still, you know, she'll play festivals for the next 20 years if she wants to. And you can see that kind of play out in a much more compact time frame. People like uh, Carly Rae Jepsen or, or uh, Tanache and, and most recently Lord, I think, who, uh, who's, you know, she, she might never have a hit as big as Royals again, but because of Royals, people, ha- everybody knows who she is and people have to pay attention to her. And so she gets to do this kind of uh, left field, uh, you know, some very personal and intricate pop music that people might not t- pay attention to otherwise. And Robin sort of sets the accidental model for that with her career. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it, it's funny because that, that arc like stretches like back to you know like so many things. I mean, like you know, like Marvin Gaye went on to to do things uh, that were nothing like his sixties, his, uh, his late sixties Motown stuff or, or or Stevie Wonder and such. So it's it's like this old trope that's kind of coming back. I, I guess. I wonder if that has anything to do with like the industry kind of realizing uh, maybe for certain periods that uh, that they were just kind of like signing artists and dropping them after they did the one thing that that they were hired to do, and that maybe uh, the idea of fostering a a career is back or something. I mean, it's it's a good thing either way. Uh, the fact that Carly was able to have that, or Lord was able to have that kind of career arc in like a fraction of the time that that Robin did. Uh, means that maybe Robin uh, helped pave the way for for women like that to get respect. So thank you, thank you very much, Dan Weiss, uh, freelance writer extraordinaire. Will always be around. Uh, really appreciate you coming on, Dan. Uh, thank you too. Hey, hello, and welcome back to Coming Around Again. Uh, next up, we're going to discuss a great album that nobody really talks about anymore, and that's, that's Wyclef Jean's The Carnival, which turns 20 on uh, Saturday, June 24th. To talk about it with us, we have uh, Chris Martins in, in a rare break from his busy Billboard cover story writing schedule. What's up, Chris? Andrew, how's it going, man? Going all right. So, see, so you mentioned to me, Chris, that you actually already talked to Wyclef once this year as, as a secondary for a Lucas Graham story? <laughs> yeah, it was really, really random. It was, you know, sometimes when you're looking for secondaries, you, you just do a real wide net, and, and if you don't come up with great ideas initially, it's like, who mentioned who on Twitter? Sure, yeah. And awesomely, of all people, Wyclef mentioned Lucas uh, and, and how much he loved uh, that song, Seven years was it called That's the one, yeah. <laughs> um yeah seven years and uh and so i and I basically i'll admit you know like part of the fun of doing these cover stories is who you get to talk to in the secondaries and sometimes like it's me trying to check off like my favorites and yes. in that case i was like this is my opportunity finally to talk to wyclef and did he live up to expectation was it was he everything you ever dreamed of Oh, right, he did. I mean, he answered the he answered the phone. The best thing was he answered the phone by saying, "Word up, family!" And like my, you know, my fifteen year old self, like, which is the age I was when the carnival came out, just like completely melted. And it was it was hard for me to recover <laughs> like, the actual interview. But he he mentioned it in a lot of other ways too, where it's just like. He, of course, talked about how he plans on covering seven days or seven years in his set, and which is just a very Wyclef thing. Like, he did, did that ever end up happening? He, even 
I don't I don't think it has, but like okay. but I imagine he says that a lot and that he always means it. Sure. Because he does he, this is very much a Wyclef thing, right? It's like see a thing that he likes musically and then to do it and like often to do it quite well. Um even if it's for not fit. Uh, so so that was there, and then he also made a strong point to uh, remind me that the 20th anniversary of this album is indeed coming up. And, oh, um, wow. So, time you, he was, so you, <laughs> time, he was ready for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So at that time, he was plotting, I think there was like a February uh, show in New York, I think celebrating the carnival. Okay. And he was trying to tell me to do everything in my powers to get out there. And alas, uh, I... As a Los Angeles resident, did not make it out east. All right, so you mentioned your uh, your fifteen year old self already. Uh, I know you're a big fan of this album. Were, were you a big fan of this album when when it came out in 1997? Yeah, I mean that's that's when it that, that's absolutely. I mean, I, I don't I, I don't want to say my fandom has faded, but I mean if there's a, a peak to it, that's absolutely when it happened. Um, was pretty much the day it came out. Um, I actually, I actually don't have a specific memory of like tracking it down. Um, I probably got it at a Sam Goody, which is a get the outdated, CD from Sam Goody. Sure, yeah, dated <laughs> record shop that dwells in malls. Used to dwell in malls. That is referenced in the single from this album, but um, either that or like a BMG ordering service. Uh, but <laughs> something outdated for sure. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I just, like, I put this album on repeat, all 24 tracks of it, um, when I was 15, when it came out, uh, I'd been a huge Fuji's fan, and, you know, I, I, like, as everybody was, I think, at that point, I mean, I think when the score came out, uh, I mean, God, like, what like that and AT Aliens by Outkast, it was sort of, like, why bother listening to anything else? Mm-hmm. Um, both, both albums were really taking, like, just a super kind of wild and weird liberties with the sound and shape of rap and uh it just i don't know but they also were like so accessible and catchy and awesome um so anyway like to me i was always you know i've always been a music geek and like i'm a liner's notes guy you know so i to me like wyclef was was god i mean yeah like there were (laughs) there's you know lauren is a bigger star in that album or whatever but um you know, for me, I was like, wait, Wyclef is the one that's holding this whole thing together. Uh, and so to me, like I said, the dude was a god. <laughs> yeah. So I was waiting. I was wait, sorry, I was, I was waiting for that, for that solo Wyclef album. Oh well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to kind of look back on. I mean, obviously, uh, the Fugees, as you, as you mentioned, they were they were maybe the biggest thing in rap in 1996. Uh, and certainly for suburban white kids, they were the second coming. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, and that, that album sold something like six million copies, and it was... You know, had singles that were everywhere, uh, and and Wyclef was the architect of it, uh, and, and it seemed like that clearly. But yet, he wasn't really the star of the group. The star of the group was Lauren Hill, who you know right. had the big vocal on "Killing Me Softly" and and, and just kind of stole every song that she was in. And so, yeah, sure. when, when this album came out, uh, I mean, I, I remember being excited for it, but I also just didn't really quite know what to make of it. And especially once once I actually bought it, you know, I remember having it on cassette. Uh, you said you listened to all twenty four tracks like on repeat. I maybe made it through the entire thing twice i don't know once or twice not 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 a lot uh but you know the the fujis were you know the the score was their last album uh but in 1997 they were still an enormous cultural force uh they were on a whole bunch of soundtracks uh both both together and in solo and then uh when wyclef dropped it dropped the carnival it did feel like it was still part of this this huge moment uh, yeah. but it, I'm not really sure that the public knew what to make of him apart from the rest of the group. It's, it's kind of like a, an unfiltered sort of sprawling vision where 
it, it's clear that this guy was, was the brains behind the operation, but without the other two members to, to balance him, it, it, it seemed like uh, it wasn't sure. It wasn't a sure thing that he was going to be a star in his own right. Right. Uh, I, I, that's that's totally true. Um, I think for my level of nerdiness, it was clear to me that he was the star of my of my little Fuji's mm-hmm. play um, in my own mind. But um, but that's not that's obviously not reality. Um, and but I think like I guess what I w- what I would say is that you know he he did in a way position himself as the co-star at all times, right? Because sure. this album, I mean, yes, this album is his album, and it's called Wyclef Jean Presents the Carnival, the actual title of the album. But that's literally everything he's ever been involved with. I mean, like, it's always Wyclef Jean Presents. Like, I mean, if you think about, like, yeah, Kill Me Softly, of course, that's Lauren's song, but, like, Wyclef's album's on better fantastic. I mean, oh, yeah. like, he just, he, like, brings in this the certain pacing and, like, an interplay that like seems to tease more out of whoever's on the song. It, it's like if DJ Khaled had the voice of an angel, and, like, <laughs> plus, could, plus could like drop bars. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's 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 totally fair. I, I think that the DJ Khaled comparison isn't even a totally inaccurate one, and he does kind of seem <laughs> on this record like like yeah, he's on most tracks, if not every track, but it does seem like he's more the director of the proceedings than the kind of overwhelming, like, single-minded artist who who really like, is putting himself front and center. Uh, and the really cool thing about this album, I think the reason why like I found it so refreshing to come back to uh, in the last couple of years more so, is that, like, it, its worldview is just enormous. Like, the, the, the universe of this album, beyond even who's on it, uh, it just encompasses so much. There's there's different cultures, there's different languages, and and there's even like like a, a very kind of open ended dialogue between different generations of music uh, going on in this album. And uh-huh. like it, it, it's so much fun to listen to because it, it sounds like somebody who's like kind of perpetually falling in love with music over and over again with each song. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think that uh, if you take out the sketches, and I think we'll probably wind up talking a little bit more about oh, the yes. sketches. But, about um, sketches. but if you take those out, you kind of have three three albums or three EPs, really. Like, kind of, I feel like one is sort of the third Fuji's LP that never came out. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, even if Chronos and Lauren are barely on the album. But songs like Apocalypse and, and Year of the Dragon, which has Lauren Hill on it, I mean, sure. they're, they're very much like the score part two. Um, but then there's like this, yeah, like the guitar loving, crooning, like cooing Wyclef, who's actually worthy of hosting people like the Neville Brothers on a song like Mona Lisa. I mean, which is just this incredible collision of, of what you're talking about, where it's generational and cultural, uh, just this bizarre magic that actually works so well. I mean, the Neville Brothers, I don't think have ever sounded so good on modern production or contemporary to that day production, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, or the fact that, like, there's a song, I mean, uh, 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 what's it called, Gunpowder, where he's singing back by the I-3s, which is Bob Marley and the Whalers backing singers, not to mention Marley's wife, Rita. Right, yeah. Um, and, he, and he's great. I mean, like, there's no secret that Wyclef, like, I don't know, as a kid, like, I, I, was, I grew up with Bob Marley stand. my dad raised me up in front of Marley. <laughs> and, like, I always just wanted Wyclef to make, like, that album with him and his guitar and he never i don't think he ever did um but on songs like that it's just it's just stunning and again and then there's the third aspect which is like this there's this little like haitian creole ep mm-hmm. tacked onto it mostly at the end but there's also the, the song phase song that's like in the middle or toward this you know i don't know last 30 out third of the album and and that's like you know when it came out it was certainly music unlike anything i've ever heard i'd ever heard and i 
I really don't think it was like anything else it was having because it was this strange hybrid of like rap and reggae and rock and Haitian rah-rah music and R&B and acoustic and soul. And, and then, of course, again, it's just like, you've got the numbers, you've got him remaking a Bee Gees song, you've got him remaking a Willie Nelson song, you've got him remaking a Taylor Cruz song with Taylor Cruz on it. Uh, later on, he's working with Paul Simon like, and Bono and Tom Jones, uh, but also, like, now he's working with Young Thug, uh, like, which... God, yeah, sure, Wyclef came from rap, but that might as well be a world apart from, from the rap world that he came from. Um, yeah. But coming back to the carnival, it, it completely does, you know, sort of just take all these things and mash them up. And it, I think, and so definitely in a way that, again, like, it may be, um, it's very 90s, right, to combine all this stuff. But, like, it's done very tastefully surprisingly so and i think in revisiting this album a lot of that holds up uh, and it doesn't sound so much like the like the loud rocks compilation where like people from wu-tang were like recording with like smash mouth or whatever that was um it it really just sounds great and i think uh, just as one further point like that you know the fujis were were obviously like such a new york group but in a way that is so inclusive because you know, they, they had such an immigrant sound, but also like such a native New York energy. And like, it just, I think, you know, I think in hindsight, and listening to a Wyclef album, it realized like what a steady and restraint the, uh, the score was because here, like all that stuff, all those influences, the Latin stuff, the, the African stuff, like the Caribbean, mm-hmm. like all oh, it just explodes. Yeah, it all just comes pouring out sort of, you, you talk about the, uh, the album kind of, uh, you know, being three separate entities in one. I think you can almost see that in miniature uh, with the three singles on the album, at least a couple of which you already sort of alluded to, which are uh, mm-hmm. uh, We Trying to Stay Alive, which was the uh, the, the kind of redo of the Bee Gees' uh, Staying Alive from Saturday Night Fever and had the Saturday Night Fever-like video. Uh, and the the Celia Cruz remake, Guantanamero, that which said actually has Celia Cruz on it, uh, and, mm-hmm. then, and then Gone Till November, the third single, which is a sort of a, a very almost traditional pop rock song, a ballad, an acoustic ballad. And you kind of get like like the you know the staying alive is kind of the Fuji's uh, redo because you know I think Praz is on that song, Jean Forte is on that song, uh, yeah. and then Guantanamera is him kind of exploring his his you know his roots, and and gone till till November is just him making an amazing pop song. Uh, did you have a favorite among those three singles? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess boy at the time. I mean, I think I think uh, One Time Mary was beautiful, but I don't know that it was ever um, in my favorites on the album. But it was a strange choice for single, second single, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Of the singles, um, really, God, it was kind of tied for me between the two, um, mm-hmm. "Stay Alive" and "Gone Till November." I think, like, <laughs> but I, I do have. I guess I have qualms with "Stay" with uh, with trying to stay alive. Um, not in that. That had nothing to do with my enjoyment of it. Like, it's a super fun, super cool song, and I think going back to it, I still enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But I, part of me almost wishes it didn't exist because I kind of think it gave Wyclef, like, license to go down a path of trying to do these weird pop crossover moments that I think ultimately sort of diluted his brand and sometimes made him seem a little corny. The and, Diddy and, path, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and it's really, you know, a song like... Like, we're trying to stay alive. I mean, look, I my nostalgia for that may be blinding me, but I actually don't think that's a corny song. Like, no. it could have gone really corny, like, Simpsons Bee Gees are basically remaking a Bee Gees song and turning it into a rap track. But I thought, I think it's a really, really cool song. Um, but that's such a tough type. 
keep walking down. And I think like later on when he does a song with The Rock, which um, is kind of ridiculous. Uh, in hindsight now, I'm like, I kind of enjoy the ridiculousness of it, but like still not a great look. And, and then the song later on with Tom Jones, and I don't know, it's it sort of, he kind of loses, he kind of plays himself to right, a little quote bit. Khaled. Always <laughs> um, well, comes back to Khaled. <laughs> and then uh, Con Film of Everman, I mean, I thought she was surprised to realize in preparing for the on um, you know, Wikipedia and the charts and stuff that Con Film of Ember was the bigger song. Because um, it's just, it's a really pretty, and I guess you said it, it is more of a traditional, like, kind of rock ballad or whatever, but it, but it does have rap verses, and it, I don't know, it's still just, it's a really pretty song, a really unique sounding song. It's powered by Wyclef, Wyclef's voice which is great mm-hmm. and also the new york philharmonic so it's, it's sort of surprising that that was the bigger track um and i i love it like i you know i'm really into that side of white cloth yeah uh it's definitely between those two for me i think i actually might give the edge to, to be trying to stay alive i mean I, I keep expecting to go back to that song and kind of like be confronted with what you're talking about where it's just like, oh, it's so corny. It's just such a 1997 way to structure a hit. But like, man, that song has a strut to it. It just bursts through the door and it, it, it's unstoppable. I, I, I never get yeah. sick of that song, really. Uh, but, I agree 100%. Yeah, but Gone to November is definitely the like the accomplishment song on that album. And I, I got a you know, shout out to that video, uh, especially for like the two seconds where, where Wyclef says, and you're knocking on heaven's door like I'm Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan actually shows up just like sitting in the airport next to him. So, <laughs> yes, that's definitely one of the that's definitely one of the more indelible memories from that that album cycle. But uh, so beyond the singles, are there are there any like deep cuts or, or like little moments on the album that really stuck with you twenty years later? Oh man, I mean. I'll try to keep it <laughs> limited. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first real song in the Apocalypse is really cool. It's just, it's so eerie. It has that opera sample, and then mm-hmm. the bass kicks in really hard, and it's Wyclef planting his flag at the top of this album mountain. Um, I also think, you know, uh, the one I mentioned, uh, The Lauren Hills on Year of the Dragon is just a killer post boom bap banger and like the, very much in the Fuji's mold awesome beat on that um, song again the song with the Neville the Neville Brothers Mona Lisa which is a throwback to the very first Fuji's album um, that song is just gorgeous it's slinky it's sexy they, they just sound incredible over mm-hmm. his production uh, but again um, I you know I was just I was completely raised on Bob Marley and such a such a Marley stand so for me there's, there's just kind of nothing better than Gunpowder it's a beautiful song um, and sort of it's kind of the spiritual sequel to um, the Fuji's doing No Woman No Cry. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's sort. It, I mean, it's it's very much conceptually, tonally, uh, you know, almost the same song, but um, it's his own version of it, and it just it's so so pretty. I love mm-hmm. it so much. Uh, only thing I have to add to that is that I, I just love that there's multiple moments on this album where either he or Lauren make reference to how the Knicks keep losing in the playoffs. It's, it's a it's a very <laughs> real thing. For a late '90s East Coast rap album to to keep kind of harping on, and I, I just love that. Uh, so uh, that that's all the stuff that that we kind of love about the album. Uh, and yeah. you know, at, at the time, it was a, it was a moderate hit. You know, I, I saw that it actually peaked at number sixteen both on the Billboard 200 and on the year end uh, Village Voice Paz and Jop poll. So like you know, de- decently commercially successful, decently critically acclaimed. But I, I do feel like uh, the album's kind of been forgotten in the 20 years since. Uh, and and you know, the, part of it is because parts of the album don't really hold up so well. Uh, part of it might be that Wyclef's kind of seen as a cad a little bit in, the, in the, the stuff that's come out about the way he and Lauren split up. 
Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, so, what do you think is the reason that, like, more than anything else, that that, that maybe this album hasn't held held up as well in the, in the public esteem? Ah, uh, man, it's kind of tough. I I think I can't, for me. Um, I guess my my view is very uh, very colored by the fact that I was just such such a white boss fan in that era. Um, and you know, again, for me, it was like number one out of you know the foodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like. I don't know. I think he sort of diluted his legacy a little bit. I think now nobody's too worried about him doing that further. But I think um, at the gate, I think maybe after the success to Stan Alive for the Stan Alive reboot, I think he just, I don't know. I think he diluted his legacy with thirst and sort of <laughs> strange, strange collabo situations. Um, I'm all for taking those chances and I, I bless him for doing it. But I, I think sometimes it, it's come across a little bit grabby. Um, and who knows what that might be. I mean, that okay. will be, that probably is very much tied with like how we all view the Fujis and really the fact that Lauren is sort of the, the like, uh, you know, excuse the phrase, but the mouth genius of the group and Praz, uh, you know, <laughs> Praz was like a great voice and, and he was fun to listen to, but his vision never panned out. He never panned out as having much of a vision worth speaking of. And and I think, you know, I think Wyclef Proud might, he might have at least at some point had a chip on his shoulder um, in the same way that I do on his behalf, which is that like, man, like he held that whole thing together. And again, it only really mattered for one album right. uh, the score but like what an album that was and what an amazing moment like, he could make Proz like really seem like somebody was to care about as an I, I still love the sound of Proz's voice man I, I, maybe he didn't really, really have the word play abilities on his own but right. man he, he, he added something to the Fugees that I never I feel like he's never still really gotten credit for but no, it, I, I, I'm with you on that I, I'm with you on that and then they also I mean, and I don't, I never want to take away from, uh, from what Lauren Hill's been able to do in her sure. career. Um, and obviously, in this education, Lauren Hill is a wonderful album. I don't know a whole lot about the, honestly, uh, the behind the scenes on that. Like, I feel like with the score, like, he gave Lauren's genius, like, a really good framework. Sure. And I don't mean that he's responsible for her genius, but I think it all just, they balance each other and they balanced out his, his, you know, weird inclinations. Um, so I don't know. I think left on his own, he may have felt like he really needed to to show and prove um, that he is the genius that uh, nobody was, or in, maybe not enough people were in a rush to say he was. Yeah, um, uh, that that's all fair. Uh, definitely, the critical respect for for Wyclef kind of declined the longer his career went on, and, and some of the collaborations got. Yeah, as you say, more and more thirsty, and and yeah, I'd even forgotten about some of them that I was looking at the list uh, earlier today. And, and <laughs> now he gets into the EDM era the last couple of years. I think there's a song with Afrojack. I'm like, so some of it works, some of it really doesn't. Uh, you yeah. appreciate they still taking a shot, but it's definitely uh, diminishing returns at a certain point. Uh, yeah, but but I think it also, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. Off. I, but I but I would say that you're going to bring this up that um, you know again also skits, almost yeah, skits don't skits. really age well. Uh, I mean, the very common them in its place don't really age well even people don't do them <laughs> sometimes they insist upon it um but in hindsight you just never pull up and this album uh, you know this, this album is sort of like framed by this like court this like court case where white club is being tried as uh, a player a bad influence and a gd revolutionary <laughs> um so, I, which i kind of like it's very it's very much 
time is funny, but um, but there's but it is problematic. At yeah, time. borders on the offensive uh, in a numerous you know numerous different ways. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a character named Down Low Ho, which is just is as bad of a racist Asian caricature as Long Duck Dong, Long Duck Dong, mm-hmm. Sixteen Candles. It's really horrible. Um, yeah, there's another one that's kind of ugly. It's just I think it's a sketch that's meant to skewer how quickly police suspect black men of doing terrible things, which is absolutely fair. But it also implies that women are prone to crying rage, and that's yeah. like a hateful, horrifying myth. And I just do not want to hear that in an album that I love. It's right in the middle of the album too, and it really takes the air out of it. Yeah, it's really, really gnarly. Um, and yeah, and then just the length. Yeah, the fact that it's 24 tracks, um, and nine of those are skits or interludes. That's just kind of insane. <laughs> like, um, so uh, you know, but it, we have the benefit now of putting together and editing our playlist quite easily. Very true. And if you cut out those nine tracks, you get over 10 minutes of the album um, off of it, which is lovely. So it ends up being 50, 15 songs in like 60 minutes. So it's not not too bad in hindsight. So. Yeah, we were, we were talking a little bit about kind of his diminishing influence over the years, his diminishing importance, at least. Are there artists uh, out today that you kind of see either as, as parallels to Wyclef or like people who are obviously indebted to him in some way and anywhere where you kind of see the spirit of Wyclef being kept alive in 2017? Yeah, I, I would say the spirit is there. I don't know necessarily the direct influences, but I, I mean, honestly, I almost think anyone interesting coming at rap now has a little bit of Wyclef spirit in them, whether they know it or not. And I think, you know, they may not have... Uh, I mean, the big difference is, right, this, this uh, younger generation has been streaming all music ever since they were old enough to click. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that collapsed the generations and muddles genres, you know, sure, handily yeah. and, and, and messily. Um, the difference with Wyclef, I think, was precision and finesse um, and just his sort of obvious reverence um, for musical history and, and his own musical training. Um, obviously, he's a really great guitar player. Um, but... Guys like Young Thug or, or Yachty or whomever, you know, they're coming at rap from weird angles. Um, they're incorporating outside genre tropes and, you know, and, and, and just mel- melding and mixing up all types of rap and music and it comes out the way it does. Uh, I, I don't think it's, a, I think it makes sense. I don't know who figured it out, but that like Wyclef and, and Young Thug cross pollinated on this, on each other's last cycles. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a crush moment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it wasn't necessarily like the best result ever, but like I don't know, it's still kind of cool that, that, that it happened. Um, and I think you know somebody else we've, that, that's come up um, that is slight, somewhat a modern analog would be uh, Khaled. Um, okay. Again, yeah. without the incredible singing voice or the bars or the guitar play. Or, <laughs> Besides that, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the other um, artistic stuff that White Club is known for. Um, you know, Khaled is referenced in recent cover story, and he's, he's certainly more more ditty than uh, White Club, but he also has a deep reverence for music mm-hmm. and, and the music that he loves, and a desire to bridge genres and to bridge artists, and also to position himself as sort of the loving puppet master, which again, like presents presented by White Club, John. Like, I mean, everything sure. White Club has done very much has a stamp on it and you know he's not out there yelling another one but he's doing something you know to put a stamp on it for sure yeah uh, did you ever get to listen to uh the Jadena album the, the chief um not in not in depth i, right. I have to admit 
that's one like I it didn't occur to me at the time when I was listening to it. It's, it's a really good album, and the, the, thinking about it in kind of the context of Wyclef the last month or so, like it's another guy. He's got a got a very clear but very expansive vision. He's hip hop. He's not totally hip hop. He has his his ears uh, open to a whole bunch of different genres, and it's, especially when he does kind of uh, reggae influenced songs on that album, it really kind of kind of echoes some of the stuff that Wyclef was doing on the Carnival. Uh, oh, yeah, and I, I don't know for a fan. That, I don't know for a fact that he's a, a fan of Wyclef, but I bet you Wyclef would be a fan of his if, if he heard that album. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Wyclef has, has heard it, and Wyclef is already working on the remix <laughs> or the remake or yeah. the collab. He's going to cover Classic Man in his next concert. Uh, <laughs> and and we'd probably be remiss uh, to not uh, mention Wild Thoughts, the new song by by Khaled and and Rihanna. Uh, and yes. Bryson Tiller actually too, although his parts are sort of negligible compared to the other two. Uh, and that song it samples uh, Maria Maria, which was a Santana song from the very beginning of the millennium. That you know, it, it's a Santana song, but it's really a Wyclef song, and it's 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 featuring yeah. his singing group, the, the the product GNB. But you know, he's doing those ad libs on it, and I, I, like th- that song could have slotted onto the Carnival pretty easily, right? Oh yeah, absolutely, like one hundred percent. I mean, I'd argue that that whole. Um that whole Santana album, what was that album called? Supernatural. Everybody. What was it? Supernatural? Super, yeah, it sold some like 16 million copies in an insane moment in music history. Right, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I owned it for sure. <laughs> I, mean, I think I kept it probably like three years, but I, I owned it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd argue that a lot of the ideas on there could, you know, there are of a piece with the sort of world that uh, Wyclef lives in. Um, but yeah, Maria Maria is, is absolutely a Wyclef song. It feels like it, you, you know it from, from the beginning really. And uh, I, did, I think it's, I think it's really, it's really awesome. I'm kind of excited to, to hear, to hear it again um, with new people singing on it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it even has the guitar solo in it, which is yeah. amazing. I, like it's, it's like, I haven't actually done a side by side, but I kind of don't want to, like, I don't want to know how close the result is, um, or how different it is, but I love that it's, it's here again. And, and I, probably because it's testament to the idea that like, Hey, maybe we should tune back into the carnival. Like yeah. maybe those songs have aged just fine. And maybe we are at another point where, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to be the, uh, the kind of, overstated rap and rock hybrids of, of the late 90s into the early 2000s but like we're at another point where music is really really meshing and melting and mixing a lot and um, you know I think like pop ears or radio ears are, are more than primed to hear the kind of stuff that, that Wyclef has been churning out for decades now I guess yeah to- totally and I gotta say like even I haven't even formed an opinion on Wild Thoughts yet because I'm, I'm just going back and listening to Maria Maria, like just remembering what a, what a great song that is and, and what a great Wyclef song. It's just another like you know cross generation, cross genre. And it's just a, a absolute knockout hook. Like nobody does it better yeah. than Wyclef, and it, it, it's good that that uh, Cali gave the people a, a reason to remember that. Uh, and and so yeah, Chris Martins, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, get, get back to work on that cover story and hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Talk to you soon. 